let me say this. We are in a, a letter to the church at Ephesus. It's called Ephesians. It's in the New Testament. And Paul is writing this uh, letter to the church, but there doesn't seem to be any issue or problem within the church. I mean, a lot of these other letters are dealing with a very specific issue. But the book of Ephesians, Paul is not tied down by any particular issue. He's just, he's sort of, he's unfettered by any of that. And he's just providing, really, a blueprint for the church. And that's why we wanted to start with the book of Ephesians. As we as a church start, what better place to begin than the book of Ephesians where Paul lays out this blueprint for what it looks like to be, to be the church. And what he's been describing in, chapter, in the first three chapters of Ephesians is life in gospel territory. Life in Christ. Now, from the outside, the Christian faith, the Christian gospel, seems very narrow, outdated, right? We as a culture, we've been there, we've done that. We don't need to go back to Christianity. There are a variety of other pathways to God or to the gods or to heaven or to nirvana or to whatever personal fulfillment. Whatever your goal is, there are so many better ways to get there that aren't outdated and antiquated like Christianity, right? Now, here, here's the thing. All of these other roads, every other road operates like this. What you do determines who you are. What you do determines who you are. So uh, for you grammarians out there, the imperative precedes the indicative, right? Imperative, like what you do determines who you are, right? If I follow the five pillars of Islam, then I can be, then I am a good Muslim. Or if I make a pilgrimage to the Potala Palace in Lhasa, Tibet, then I can be a good Tibetan Buddhist. Even Christians operate sort of backwards with the imperative preceding the indicative. If I go to church every Sunday, if I read my Bible every, every day, if I pray, and if I'm on the deacon, you know, if I'm a deacon, then I'm getting the thumbs up from God, right? The imperative informs the indicative. We even operate this way in life, right? If I, if I crush a wad every day of my life, then I can be a good crossfitter. Or if I make, if I, if I make the, the, the high school football team, then I can count. Then I can be popular. Then I can be deemed a cool high school kid. Or if I get a PhD, then I can be deemed smart. Or if I hit my sales targets, then I can be successful. If I satisfy every whim and wish of my children, then I can be considered a loving mother. Right? And we even teach this. We pass this M.O. down to our kids that, that who you are is determined by what you do, right? How many parents take their kids by, around the, you know, put their arm around them and say, uh, son, I love you because you have worked hard. You're getting along with your siblings. You're doing your job in school. Well done. I set my love on you as a result. 
or the teacher in the classroom. Students, if we turn our work in on time, and if you listen to my instructions, then I will set my love upon you. And while these, these approaches to life, where uh, what we do determines who we are, they seem very open on the front end, but once you start walking down that path, it starts to narrow and narrow, and it begins to suffocate. And sooner or later, you'll find that you're, you are walking a tightrope that demands perfection. There's no margin for error going down this path. Christianity, on the other hand, life in gospel territory is different. At the beginning, it kind of looks narrow. But once you get in, it, it opens up, right? And it's the exact reverse of every other path, right? Because Christianity says the indicative precedes the imperative. What you do emerges out of who you have been declared to be, out of who you are in Christ. This is the cadence of Christianity. This is the cadence of the New Testament. It's also the cadence of the book of Ephesians. This is what Paul has been doing. For the first three chapters of the book, he has been explaining who we are in Christ. He's been exploring the realities of the gospel. And he hasn't even begun to tell us what to do as a church. He's, he's about to start in chapter 4. He's going to begin. But he spent his first three chapters explaining the indicative because it's out of that that, that that the imperative comes, right? Do this in light of who you are. Don't do in order to be. The who you are precedes what you do. And so we're, we're, we're uh, approaching a pivot point in the book of Ephesians. The pivot is at chapter 4. And so this is Paul. Our passage this morning is Paul's last few words. It's actually a prayer on how we should... Uh, what we need to kind of get before we embark upon life as a church, before the church at Ephesus embarks upon life as a church. So that's the backdrop. And by the way, a prayer. Prayers, prayers reveal things. They uh, open us up to what a person cares about. I've, for the last two to three years, I've, I've kept this prayer journal. It's not because I'm like super spiritual. It's because... Um, I actually doubt God's activity in my life quite often. And by keeping my prayers written, I can kind of track God's involvement in my life. It helps my doubting heart. Uh, and, and it also, if you were to pick up this prayer journal, you would learn a lot about me. About my hopes, my dreams, my wishes, my desires, my sins, my struggles. And so this prayer of Paul is going to reveal things. So let's, let's go ahead and read it. I know you've, many of you have read it at home, but we're going to read it again. This is Ephesians, a book of the New Testament. It's chapter 3, and it begins at verse 14. So it's at the, the back half of uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All flesh is like the grass and its glory like flowers. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word lasts forever, stands forever, right? And this is God's word. Let's pray together again as we, as we approach this text. Father, we give you uh, thanks. Again, it is fitting that we turn to, to pray and, and give, you, give you thanks for who you are, for the beauty that I hear all around me. Um, and uh, for the gift of your word, we believe that it contains power. You promise that it does contain power. And we pray that even in this uh, unique format that we're in, that its power would be unleashed by the power of your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So, this prayer of Paul reveals four things. There's four things that he prays for. Four things. He prays for strength. He prays for roots. He prays for knowledge. And fulfilling. Strength, roots, knowledge, and filling. But first let's consider the lead up before we consider the actual content of the prayer. Verse 14, Paul says, for this reason. Now last week I said that uh, life in gospel territory, when you're you're exploring the, the realities of the gospel, it is more like a tour of Florence than it is like a red eye to Denver. Right? And if that's the case, then Paul is like a tour guide. And in these first three chapters, he's like a giddy tour guide that can't contain himself. He's, he's bouncing all over this gospel. And he, be, he actually begins this prayer in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, for this reason. And then he gets sidetracked again. And he starts talking. The passage we looked at last week, right? The mystery of the gospel revealed. And he goes off on that. And now he's back on course again beginning this prayer. And look at who he addresses in the prayer. Verse 14. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. Right? Before the Father. The fact that Paul is addressing God as Father is surprising. Right? In the Old Testament, God was very rarely uh, spoken to as Father. And then Jesus comes around and in his teaching, teaches us, his disciples, to pray our Father. Right? We just prayed it a moment ago earlier as, as families. Our Father. Um, and, and really, it's, it's not even that formal. The, 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 the Aramaic is Abba. Right? Abba. It's, it's what a child calls its father. You can imagine a, a two-year-old, their first word out of their mouth. Abba. Abba. Right? That's how we're to address this great uh, God. And look, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, right? Flowing forth from our passage last week and even before that in chapter 2. And then verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, ooh, the riches of his glory, that sounds very churchy. Sounds great, but what does it mean? Riches of his glory. Um, Think of it this way. Michael Jordan had a glory on the basketball court. Whether you knew basketball or not, you watched Jordan play and you saw it. You saw that glory. You saw the athleticism. You saw um, the competitiveness. You saw the air 
of Jordan. And it was glorious to behold. In fact, our family still likes to go back and watch Jordan highlights as a family on YouTube. Now, when Michael Jordan got himself on the baseball diamond, did he have glory there? Not so much. He tried. He wasn't very good at it. Uh, Rashik Genhasri. Do you know who Rashik Genhasri is? He, was, he, is, the, he is our, ni- our 2019 Spelling Bee champion. And on that spelling platform, Rashik has a glory when it comes to spelling. Now, and it can spell incredible words I've never even heard of. Rashik can spell. Now, if we put Rashik on a, on a basketball court, I doubt that that same glory would be there. And conversely, if we put Michael Jordan on the spelling bee platform, you probably wouldn't see the same kind of glory. Here's the point. When we talk about the glory of God, what we're talking about, and this is Herman Bavink talking, what we're talking about is God's infinite splendor and brilliance in all that he does. Whatever arena God is operating in, there is an infinite splendor and brilliance that the glory of Rashik on a spelling platform and the glory of Jordan on a basketball court is just a faint, faint shadow of. That the color and and brilliance of tulips and cardinals is just a a glory drip of the infinite, glorious beauty of God. That the that the stony, dramatic slopes of the Rocky Mountains are just a glory drip of the infinite, glorious power that is God's. And so, when, and, and uh, here's, here's another example. You've heard me talk about Beetlejuice before, this star that is, is so big, so enormous, that it was, if it was an empty jar and we plant, uh, uh, poured into that jar planets the size of planet Earth at the rate of 100 planet Earths per second, it would take 30,000 years to fill that star with planet Earth balls. It's incredible. And that is just a drip of the glorious magnitude that is God. And so all of creation and all of God's work in creation is just a, it's just a sampling of the riches of God's glory. And it's on that basis that Paul prays for the things he prays for, right? For the strength, roots, knowledge, and filling. So first let's consider the strength that he prays for. Verse 16. Paul prays that God, that God would grant us, the church at Ephesus and us, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul prays that we would have an internal strength via the Spirit and that Christ would dwell in us. Look, in, in the first chapter, Paul prayed for, um, res- for us to know the resurrection power that's at work within us. Right? Think, think about it. Everything in this world is dying. I, on my way here, actually, on my way to this spot this morning, in the car, I'm driving, there's a car uh, uh, 50 yards in front of me, a squirrel scurries about in front of the car, and it gets hit. It dies. And that's, you know, and it, 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 I didn't like that. For about 15 seconds, I was, 
I felt for that squirrel that got hit, right? And, and, and death is all around us, right? If we survive the coronavirus, it's only prolonging the inevitable that awaits our death. And, and not only is death all around us, but all of creation, the whole universe, is, is moving towards disorder, right? Entropy is the word for it. Chaos. But here's, here's the promise of Christianity. There is a power in this world that is overcoming all of that death and descent into disorder. And it's resurrection power. Resurrection power is single-handedly reversing the tide of death and descent into chaos that surrounds us. And Paul is praying that we know that that same power is at work within us. In fact, it's already, it's already operative in us. It has brought us from spiritual death to life in Christ. We have been born again, spiritually speaking, as a result of this resurrection power. It's raised us from the dead already, spiritually. And what Paul is praying for here, so he prays that we would know it in chapter 1, and here again he prays in this chapter that it would take effect, that Christ would dwell in our hearts, that we'd be strengthened by, by the Spirit, and Christ would dwell in us, which is it's, it's the same, it's, it's saying the same thing twice. That Christ and the Spirit would reside within us. And you may think, well, I thought, I thought, I, you know, Jesus came into my heart when I asked him into my heart. Well, uh, by the way, this is the only example in all of Scripture. You know, that's sort of the standard question. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? This is the only spot where that language is used in all of Scripture. Um, and so, yes, Jesus came into your heart. But what Paul is asking for is, is for, by the work of the Spirit, that Jesus would sink his roots deeper into your heart. That he would settle in a bit deeper into your hearts. Next thing Paul prays for, rootedness. Rootedness in love. Verse 17, he prays that you would be rooted and grounded in love. There is a movie, uh, it's kind of, it's, it's a bit out there, but it's good, uh, and I go back to it every once in a while, it's called The Tree of Life, but in this movie, it's loosely based on the, on the book of Job, but in this movie, a family is struck by suffering, and the, 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 the mom and the father have different views of the world. The mom, for, the, for the mother, grace and love is at the heart of the universe, and that that manifests itself in how she teaches her children. It manifests itself in how she wakes them up in the morning playfully. It manifests itself in how she sets the dinner table. How they, how they live their lives um, is a reflection of her conviction that at the heart of the universe is grace and love. The dad, played by Brad Pitt, uh, believes that um, power is at the center of the, the center of the universe is a power struggle, right? And, and the way that he wakes his kids up, the way that he manages them, disciplines them, the way he holds them as babies, it all reflects that understanding of the world. That it's, and he says it, he says it, he takes his child by the arm, his son by the arm, he says, your mom is naive. She's naive about life. Like the only thing, the, the way to get along in the world is through fierce will. That's the world. So what Paul is saying, what Christianity believes is that the mom is right. The heart of the universe 
is love. And the reason love is at the center of the universe is because God is at the center of the universe. Right? And God is love. And we have rebelled against Him. And by default, we're operating outside of His love. And so we're now, we've now like rooted our lives in the MO of the Father, right? In fear and pride. Like, I, I, better, I better be a good dad because, uh, man, I don't want my kids to, to not like me or I don't want to disappoint my parents or I better be a good worker because I don't want to disappoint my boss or lose my job. Um, and, 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 and so th- this is what energizes us, right? Who you, who you are, right? It's, who you are is determined by what you do. Again, the imperative precedes the indicative. That's how life is outside of God's love for us. The next point. Paul also prays not only that we would be rooted in this love of Christ, but that we would have knowledge of it. Verse 18. Let's, let's look again at verse 18. That we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know paradoxically, to know the love of Christ that's unknowable, that surpasses knowledge. Now, there is a, there is a way to know things intellectually, um, but you enter a whole another level of, of understanding when you experience the thing, right? Because Paul has been explaining this gospel for three chapters. And he understands that just, be, just if you intellectually grasp what he's explaining, it's not enough. He needs to pray that a work of the Spirit would give us a knowledge of this gospel, a knowledge of this love of Christ for us. There's this scene in uh, Goodwill Hunting. It's about a movie named Will, who, a, a teenage a young adult named Will who is brilliant, right? But he's very troubled. He's, he's an orphan and he's had a hard life. And he's been taken under the care of a psychologist who's working with him. And they're having what Will sarcastically calls their taster's choice moment on a park bench. And, and his psychologist says, look, you're, you're smart. Nobody's going to deny that. But you, I, I bet you've never even been outside of Boston where, where he grew up. I bet you've never even been outside of Boston. If I asked you about art, you could give me the skinny on every art book ever written. If I asked you about Michelangelo, you could tell me about his birth, his death, his political views, his works, his philosophy on life. But tell me this, have you ever smelled the Sistine Chapel? Right? He goes on to say, look, you know a lot, but you have not entered into um, a level of understanding that only comes with experience. Jonathan Edwards said something similar. He said, look, the, the American, the Christian uh, Puritan, American theologian. He said, I could describe all day, honey, its, its color, its consistency, its taste, its properties, but until you actually taste honey for yourself, you don't know honey. You don't know it. And that's what Paul is saying. Look, until you've tasted the love of Christ, you don't know it. And you taste it by a supernatural work of the Spirit. And here's the thing. This love, it knows no boundaries. It's bo- there, there is no bottom. There is no ceiling. There are no borders. And Athanasius, the church father, commenting on this very passage here, said, the love of Christ is unfolding 
throughout the universe. It's unfolding. And guess what? It has enveloped us, Christ's church, right? It envel- it's unfolding and at the same time envelops us. And finally, Paul prays that we would be filled, verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays that the God who created Betelgeuse, right? The star, Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse, tomato, tomato. Um, it's actually, I've heard it's pronounced Betelgeuse. The God who created that star in all of his fullness, that that God would fill us, not just individually, but corporately, right? How can we contain it? We can't. We can't contain it. And that is why Paul, as Paul moves forward, we're going re- to see that it takes the entire church body to realize God's activity in the church and in us, as we're going to see. But here's the thing. The, we mentioned this a while back, and Augustine said this, St. Augustine said this about ourselves, that the heart's desires are infinite, right? Our, our desires are infinite, and yet we, outside of God's loving care, are constantly trying to fulfill and satisfy those desires with the finite, right? If I could just get more fermented liquid in my system, then I could be satisfied. If I could just get more sex or more accolades, or more Benjamins in the bank account, then I could be fulfilled. Then my heart could be satisfied. But it doesn't work that way, right? The, the heart's desire can never be, the infinite desires of the heart can never be satisfied by the finite. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so, Paul begins the book of Ephesians with praise, chapter 1, followed by a prayer, the end of chapter 1, and then he ends this, this important section on the gospel with prayer followed by praise. Look, it's an apt bookend to the first half of the book of Ephesians. And this is what he says, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay. And so that ends the first section of Ephesians. And it is so, it is so significant. So significant because Paul is about to explain how we're to relate together as a church, how we're to relate to non-Christians outside the church. He's going to explain how we relate to our spouses. He's going to explain how we raise our children. He's going to explain how we relate to our bosses at work. And he's going to explain how we fight unseen spiritual forces. And he doesn't, do, he doesn't tell us how to do any of that until he gets us rooted in the claims of the gospel. And that's what he's done, right? It's the backdrop of grace, chapters 1 through 3. 
Um, it's so important. Because if you're, if you're in the church and you're doing all of these things and you're operating outside of the love that Christ has for you, you will grow hateful, self-righteous, and anger, angry. And, and many religious people do. There, there's some fussy people in the church. It's because they've gotten things backwards, right? They, they believe that the imperative determines the indicative. That what they do determines who they are. So they get mad, they get frustrated with people that are, that are behind them on, that, on, on the spiritual front. Or they get intimidated by people that are front. They've forgotten that, that God has declared them to be righteous and loved and adopted in Christ. And it's out of that that we do. It's out of the indicative that we live that we follow God. Being rooted in Christ and his love, it's a game changer. It, it opens up an entirely different way of living, of, of being human in the world. It's really the only way, the only true way to be human. It's life in gospel territory. And so as we're rooted in Christ, we, there's a couple of consequences to it, to being rooted in this love of Christ. One, we can finally rest. You know, think of Think of a boat, a boat's roots, right? The anchor of the boat. If, if a boat anchors itself and it gets a good sturdy plant in the ground, the boat can finally rest. And what does that mean for, for the crew on the boat? Well, they can rest as well, right? They can, they can rest, they can relax, they can even get off the boat and not worry about where it goes. There's rest. Now, we have uh, our lives for many of us, not all, but many of us, our lives have, have come to a screeching halt. And we finally have kind of an opportunity at least to rest. We can maybe sleep in more than we did in the past. Maybe even take a nap on certain days. Let me ask you this, though. In the midst of this quarantine, have you found the type of rest and settledness that you yearn for? Here's the thing, like, if, if you have not, remember what Augustine said, we said this several weeks back, that our hearts, God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And so we can have a holiday, we can have a break, we can have all of this time off, but unless we're resting in the love that Christ has for us, we will be unsettled. And so my question for you this morning is, have you been enveloped, swept up into the love of Christ? Or are you just spinning your wheels on the old treadmill of life, trying to validate your existence in this world through the things that you do? Have you been swept up into the love of Christ? You may think, hey, look, I love, I love this idea of the center of the universe being love. But you may not like the idea that it's so particular, that it's so rooted in a single person, Jesus. Let me say this. There has to be a center. And don't you want at the center, not some abstraction of love, but something concrete, an actual person, the God-man Jesus, who bears right now at the center of the universe, bears the marks of the lamb slain as indelible prints, of his, of his love towards you and towards the world. If you, if you enter, there has to be a center. There has to be a center, right? 
If we enter a room and I say, let's go find the center of this room, we can argue about like where that point, that center point is, but we don't argue that there is a center. And the claim of Christianity, Paul's claim in this gospel, in this letter, has been that there is a center of, of the universe and all things are being unified in him. And it is a person. It is the God-man Jesus. And here's the thing. Unlike a boat that gets anchored and just sort of sits, as we rest in the love of Christ, we don't just sit. It activates us for loving engagement in the world. We don't just stay at rest. Right? Tim Keller talks about the philanthropist principle, that, that the reason philanthropists give millions and millions of dollars to good causes is because they have an even bigger reservoir of wealth from, from which to draw. Billions and billions of dollars that they can draw from. You can't give what you don't have. And we've, we've been called to love one another, to love others. And in order to do that, we got to be rooted in the love of Christ. we got to draw from that infinite reservoir of Christ's love. So, as we embark upon the ministry, upon gospel ministry as King's Cross Church, I think this is a fitting prayer for us as a congregation. Let's pray together. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, help us to see of your kingdom. Help our church to be an outpost of the good news of your kingdom. A window to heaven. A place where people can hear the good news of your boundless love in Christ. And see that love in action. We pray as Paul prayed that you would fill us, strengthen us, root us, and teach us the love of Christ so that it will spill over into a world that so desperately needs your good news. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.